welcome to another episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, Onco Snacks Edition. Today, Josh and I will be discussing a very commonly encountered toxicity of chemotherapy, and that is peripheral neuropathy. It is notorious and associated with very commonly used agents, and so it is something that any oncologist, no matter how experienced or what their chosen tumor stream is, will inevitably have to face at some point. As always, I am here with Josh the Magnificent, which is what he is deciding to call himself today. And Josh, I guess we may as well start with just a little set of definitions, because because the phrase peripheral neuropathy is something that actually encapsulates a whole bunch of different manifestations. Michael, you're absolutely right. And thank you for telling everyone that my name is Josh the Magnificent. I don't know if it's true, but let's see if it catches on. So peripheral neuropathy... gone. If you believe, then it definitely will become true. I'm a true believer. But moving on to peripheral neuropathy, neuropathy in itself is a pain. It's a pain to manage. It's a pain to the patient. It's just generally a difficult situation. But the definitions do help us kind of navigate sort of where we're heading with neuropathy. So it's a bit boring, it's a bit bland, but let's just get started. Polyneuropathy is usually refers to generalized, relatively homogenous process affecting multiple peripheral nerves with distal nerve and distal involvements more pronounced. Whereas peripheral neuropathy is less precise term, which is frequently used with polyneuropathy, but can refer to disorders of the peripheral nervous system, including radiculopathies and mononeuropathies. And then the third term is neuropathy, which is generally a a general disorder of the central and peripheral nervous system. Are you confused, Michael? Already I'm confused, Josh. (laughs) Already. I know our listeners might or might not know this, but I think it's important anyone that has neuropathy to look at causes. Yes, absolutely. Um, Because while our focus as oncologists is naturally on what have we done to cause any side effect, in this case neuropathy, it's important to keep an open mind as to other causes of neuropathy, both because they might be wholly responsible, but they also might predispose a patient to developing peripheral neuropathy when challenged with cytotoxic agents. So other non-chemotherapeutic causes of peripheral neuropathy include diabetes. Poorly controlled diabetes is probably the most common cause of peripheral neuropathy at a general population level. Other causes very common in Australia is heavy alcohol intake, genetic conditions such as Charcot-Marie-Tooth, as well as some medications. Other less common causes include critical illness neuropathy, so someone's been as the name implies, critically unwell in the intensive care unit. And when they start to recover, they notice that there is neuropathic type symptoms that weren't there previously. Uremia, B12 deficiency, chronic liver disease, malabsorption syndromes such as celiac disease, infections such as VZV, CMV and HMV. Michael, you forgot the West Nile virus. Oh, thank you. The West Nile virus, very, very <laughs> common, especially outside of the Nile. Um, but our focus, of course, is on the chemotherapeutic agents. Take us through the basics of how chemotherapy-induced neuropathy can impact patients' treatment course. 
Of course, chemotherapy only generally works when you give it. If you can't give it or you have to significantly dose reduce, there's always questions surrounding how efficacious is it, will the patient receive more benefit than harm. The basics of neuropathy is that it frequently leads to dose reduction or discontinuation of this regimen. Symptoms can persist long after cessation, and sometimes this is a permanent issue. And of course, the biggest point, and I'm a very holistic kind of guy, but it impacts quality of life, making yourself a cup of tea, putting your hand in the fridge to get out some milk, those sorts of things that we really don't think about on a day-to-day basis, but our patients definitely will. If you're going to cure someone with, of their cancer, leaving them with debilitating peripheral neuropathy is not an option. There's also the pathophysiology. What is it? But realistically, this remains unclear. And unfortunately, there's no gold standard for prevention or treatment. Michael, is that the end of our podcast episode? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. No, th- there there are a couple of things that we can do that we'll get to. But I think you, you hit the nail on the head there, Josh, especially in the curative setting. So in terms of what agents are what agents are involved, you know, you're frequently in uh, having adjuvant therapy for breast cancer or colorectal cancer. So oxaliplatin, cisplatin in the head and neck space is an example, taxanes uh, such as paclitaxel or docetaxel, uh, They're frequently used in curative settings and you've really got to balance up assuming that the patient is going to be cured and have a normal lifespan or close to. You really don't want them to be left with what is at its worst, a severely debilitating uh, syndrome. Other agents include vincristine and vinblastine. Bortezomib, which I believe is used in um, multiple myeloma. Josh, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe you are correct. (laughs) That's... That's very rare. Um, And uh, angiogenesis inhibitors such as thalidomide, obviously also used in multiple myeloma these days, or its cousin lenalidomide, but thalidomide itself very rarely used. And targeted therapies as well, uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors can cause this, although it is less frequent. And you might be asking yourself the question, how do these drugs cause peripheral neuropathy? You'll be pleased to know that there are four main hypotheses, but the actual pathophysiology is still an ongoing question. So no one needs to actually listen to this part? No, no, no. Next 30 seconds, you can tune out. So neurotoxic anti-cancer drugs affect peripheral nerves by the four main trends. The first is it directly targets mitochondria and produces oxidative stress. A random oxygen species, bad for normal cells, bad for normal nerves. Number two, functional impairing ion channels. You've got you've got potassium ion channels. You remember depolarization, repolarization, all those processes when it comes to nerve pathways, they're impacted. Number three, you have triggering immunological mechanisms by activating glial cells. And number four is disruption of the microtubules. The microtubules. The microtubules or the microtubules. I thought you were taking the unusual step of naming something after me. I don't know who gave you that authority. Oh my goodness. Anyway, there are also risk factors that I think Michael might want to talk about. Absolutely, because we mentioned some genetic factors previously, but there are always pharmacogenomic uh, factors that predispose someone to developing peripheral neuropathy. There's not a whole heap we can do about these, but... I guess in the future, they are potential areas of research 
Um, so any abnormalities in the absorption, distribution, metabolism, or excretion of chemotherapeutic agents, this is probably something that we can address. So keeping an eye on things like renal function, liver function, uh, that is involved in um, absorption and metabolism of chemotherapeutic agents because ultimately, as Josh mentioned, a lot of this uh, is... A lot of the risk in developing peripheral neuropathy is related to exposure. And if you've got chemotherapy that's sort of sloshing around in your system, can't be excreted for longer than is usual, then you are at a higher risk of developing these side effects. Cellular uptake and accumulation of platinum derivatives in sensory neurons is also a factor. If people are having higher rates of uptake, I mean, in theory, that might be good for treating the cancer, but it will be less good for uh, neuronal toxicity. There is also the copper transporter 1 and copper transportin ATP ASAs, which are key transporters maintaining intracellular concentration of platinum derivative, which are key transporters in maintaining intracellular concentration of platinum derivatives. So if you have abnormalities in those pathways, you're going to be at risk of accumulating platinum and thereby leading to toxicity. Josh, there are a number of other risk factors that aren't quite so scientific or experimental. Michael, I got the easier other risk factors. So when we're looking at chemotherapy regimens, we also talk about cumulative dosing. You'll find with a lot of chemotherapy regimens, as they get towards the end of their curative phase, that leads to cessation of the drug. So in oxaliplatin, if you have greater than 850 milligrams per meter squared, you're likely to have peripheral neuropathy. And for cisplatin, it's greater than two to 300 meters per meter squared. Taxanes is dose intensity and vinca alkaloids is sort of cumulative dose as well. Other medical risk factors include prior exposure, if you had for platinums, if you've had pretreated anemia, hyperalbuminemia, hypermagnesemia, radiotherapy or pre-existing peripheral neuropathy and someone that is over the age of 75. So that's sort of what peripheral neuropathy looks like in general and some of the factors that can contribute to it but ultimately the causative agent is the chemotherapy that we're giving. And it is a fairly frequent, and it is a very frequent side effect for certain agents. As an example, for oxaliplatin, frequently used in the treatment of gastrointestinal malignancies, hepatobiliary malignancies in the second line, the incidence of uh, peripheral neuropathy is up to 90%. With, de- with the development of chronic peripheral neuropathy present in 30 to 50 percent. In the literature, the maximum duration of symptoms is up to eight years, which is probably longer than the expected prognosis of most of these patients in the advanced setting. Cisplatin, again, similar to oxaliplatin with the development of chronic neuropathy in up to 50 percent of cases, and the symptoms can last for up to 25 years, which is seen in adult survivors of childhood solid tumour, which is seen in adult survivors of childhood extracranial solid tumours. But of course, cisplatin is also used in the curative setting, particularly in the head and neck space and in the bladder space. So it is possible for you to have people surviving for long durations of time after treatment. The other um, major 
family are the taxanes and the vinca alkaloids. In terms of paclitaxel and docetaxel, again, frequently used in the treatment of breast cancer. In the later lines, they can be used in the treatment of GI cancers, upper GI cancers, and uh, bladder cancers. The incidence of neuropathy with paclitaxel is in 80 to 90% of patients, with the maximum duration of 4.7 years. Vinca alkaloids, in particular vinblastine, tend to have a incidence of 45% of patients. So this is not something that is uncommon. It's not your coronary artery vasospasms for uh, 5-FU or your DPD deficiencies. This is something that is very, very common and something that we should always instruct patients to look out for when they're being treated with any of these agents. Clinically, we usually see patients experience symptoms within the first two months of treatment and generally stabilizes after completion of treatment. There is something called the coasting phenomenon where you have worsening symptoms post-treatment or acute neurotoxicity, which can occur. It can also be asymmetrical and usually sensory axonal neuropathy with occasional motor involvement is the most common pattern. Small, Small fiber involvement such as temperature and pain Perception can also occur, leading to burning, lancinating pain. This is seen in taxane, stalidomide, and vinca alkaloids. There's also motor fibers where you have reduced or absence of deep tendon reflexes or even distal weakness, atrophy of small feet muscles, tremor and cramps in the very severe situation. And sometimes you do get autonomic involvement in vincristine and mortezanib, and you might get abdominal pain, constipation, postural hypotension, bladder disturbances as well. When I speak about patients that have these significant symptoms, we don't see them often because clinicians are more inclined to reduce or stop a causative agent and then let it get to that part. The next stage is really talking about how do you assess? So it's really looking at individual risk factors, comorbidities, potential neurotoxicities, increasing symptoms more than expected therapy with continuation and increasing in symptoms expected after therapy when it has stopped. You then go look to see if it's sensory, if it's motor, if it's autonomic to really make a assessment of where these patients are at and what you need to manage. Neurophysiological exams, you'll be looking potentially at EMG and electromyography. This can help identify pre-existing subclinical neuropathy. And if it's chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy, you'll see the axonal degeneration, where you might see reduction in sensory nerve action potentials amplitude. And if it's a motor involvement, you'll get something called CMAP, which is compound muscle action potential impairment of nerve conduction velocities. Often symptoms and EMG findings actually don't correlate, so it's not something we do very often in practice. Michael, we've talked a lot about etiology and physiology of it, but is there anything you can do to stop this from happening in patients? That's a very easily answered question, Josh, because the short answer is no, you can't. There is no pharmacological or non-pharmacological interventions that have been shown to prevent or reduce the incidence of peripheral neuropathy associated with chemotherapy, at least in humans. There is something called uh, calmagafodipia, I assume I'm saying that right, Josh, um, which is a contrast agent uh, that uh, 
possesses a agent called mitochondrial superoxide dismutase, which may uh, reduce or prevent the incidence of uh, peripheral neuropathy, but this is only present in mouse models. There's no human evidence as yet. Um, non-pharmacological interventions, obviously, given the incidence, they have there have been multiple studies investigating various things from acupuncture to cryotherapy to compression gloves with no evidence of benefit at all. The one thing that can reduce the likelihood of peripheral neuropathy is exercise. I mean, it's something that I always recommend to patients, uh, not just with peripheral neuropathy, but just in terms of their general health, to stay as active as they can. But obviously, there is no at least as far as I'm aware, Josh, there's no good evidence that it is a reliable means of prevention. No good evidence, but definitely will benefit them irrespective of that evidence. From a holistic perspective, agreed. So Josh, that's prevention, which is a big fat duck, as we say in Australia, uh, with all of our cricketing uh, greats down here. But um, what about treatment? So treatment is generally symptom management. It's not so much curative. I think time is really the only thing that will give you evidence as to whether people are improving when it comes to peripheral neuropathy. The aims are really to reduce or relieve neuropathic pain. You've got duloxetine, which is from memory the only large randomized phase trial to have evidence, and it's more effective in the cisplatin-induced peripheral neuropathy rather than the taxane. It has evidence for 1B. Josh, have you ever seen geloxetine actually work for peripheral neuropathy? No, we don't often use geloxetine either, despite it having the best evidence. But I think most of our patients that aren't in the head and neck space will get a taxane rather than a cisplatin or cisplatin-based regimen. So that might be why. Moving on, you've got venlafaxine. Um, It does work in oxaliplatin-treated patients and gabapentin, which can be used, but there's no huge trials. So these both have level 2C evidence, Michael. I don't want to take up all the fun. So what about the other neuropathic agents we're known, Michael? Do you have any, any idea of if they work? Well, I think that they are known to work not specifically with chemotherapy-induced neuropathy, but with neuropathic pain in general. So things like pregabalin, amitriptyline, you mentioned gabapentin. Uh, so they are options for, again, therapeutic management or symptomatic management, uh, but the efficacy is very variable. One thing that uh, can improve in terms of the pain component of peripheral neuropathy as opposed to the sensation loss component is a low concentration menthol cream, which is something that I hadn't heard of before now, which is which is interesting and something that probably won't do the patient any harm. Josh, are there any uh, upcoming potential treatments to try and tackle this as yet unaddressed problem? I thought you would never ask. There is one which is called Ibudilast, I-B-U-D-I-L-A-S-T. It's a small molecule inhibitor of macrophage migration and a non-selective phosphodiesterase inhibitor which, as deduced from animal studies, may reduce the clinical and pathological severity of MS by mediating an increase in nitric oxide production, suppressing suppression of both interferon gamma. There's a clinical, there, well, there was a clinical trial last year at North Shore in Sydney that was looking at this, and the drug was called Oxtox. But again, we don't have huge evidence to support this either. There is some evidence going into this area, but... 
not a huge amount. And presumably we don't have the results of that study of Oxtox just yet, do we? Not that I'm aware of. It's all sounding very grim, Josh. Um, in terms of uh, other agents that can be used, there is a uh, combination uh, gel uh, that combines baclofen, amitriptyline and ketamine. Uh, which is effective after four weeks of chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy, or can be, I should say, because the evidence, again, is level 2C, so not not spectacular. Other things that can assist with the actual treatment of established peripheral neuropathy include acupuncture. We mentioned that there's no evidence for prevention, uh, but there are some phase 2 studies that indicate a benefit in the treatment of established symptoms. And we come back to probably the best and probably the take-home message for our listeners in terms of practical tips towards peripheral neuropathy is exercise. One thing I didn't I didn't mention before, Josh, is that if you have a patient, probably what we do most of the time when encountering peripheral neuropathy with a chemo patient is either stop give the patient a, a, a holiday or dose reduce the agent um, in question because that is probably the best way to prevent, if not the onset of symptoms themselves, but prevent them be- from becoming a permanent fixture. That's right. That's really the nuts and bolts of peripheral neuropathy. I've been smelling something in the air for the last couple of weeks, Michael, and there's a buzz around town in the oncology world. Do you know why that is? I have so many thoughts about what you could be smelling, Josh, but I will not voice them in this uh, professional <laughs> forum. Uh, please enlighten me about what you're smelling and what's buzzing. Is it tinnitus? Well, it is not tinnitus. It is not uh, cisplatin-induced tinnitus. It is ASCO. So coming up soon is the American Society of Clinical Oncology general meeting and I don't know about your department, but most of mine is jetting off to the United States to live live the dream large and live. Unfortunately, Michael and I are stuck back in the land down under, but we will be giving you regular and frequent updates to keep you entertained. Yes, if we can't actually fly to Chicago, you bet we'll be keeping you up to date with all of the going-ons from our very, very cold homes. We'll see you.